Welcome to this episode of Van Attorneys Legal Pad Podcast. This is a podcast by Van Attorneys PLLC, a law firm of attorneys licensed to practice law in the state of North Carolina. The content of this podcast is not to be considered as legal advice for any particular situation or case, and this podcast does not constitute creating an attorney-client relationship. We're really uh, glad to get, be back together again, and hopefully these podcasts are helpful to uh, our listeners. We've heard from uh, some of y'all, and it's really nice to, to just get confirmation that this is helpful. So to kick this off today, we're going to be talking, at least as far as the current hot topic goes, I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal recently about the General Motors accuses a former board member of leaking confidential information to a rival automaker. That was the topic or the, the headline. So again, it has to do with a, a, a board of directors. And as Ian and I were thinking about this um, issue, we were like, you know, this this sort of makes sense because we, even though we don't represent General Motors, um, we have companies that are, you know, mom and pop companies to uh, fairly um, significantly sized small companies and some national uh, larger companies as well. But um, so the reason I think we think this is important is this applies not just to General Motors, but it applies to companies that are, you know, family owned or closely held. So the question really comes down to is what is a what's the obligation of a board of directors? And this one was this case about the General, uh, General Motors was um, it says GM is suing a former board member claiming he leaked confidential information to a rival company uh, regarding um, um, some of the uh, merger conversations they had and, and it increased their labor costs. That's why they were upset about it. So in North Carolina, uh, the fiduciaries um, is someone who owes an obligation to a, a group or to other individuals. And a board of directors member owes fiduciary duties to the corporation. All right. So there, some of the, the conversation we're going to have today might be different. We're going to really just dive into the for-profit companies, right? Not uh, not-for-profit. Uh, the board of directors, I would say, arguably probably has the same obligation, but they could be a little bit different. But for today's conversation, we're really just looking at for-profit companies. And the corporate director has a standard of conduct that they're required to maintain, and that is directors have a broad, pretty much a broad obligation to act in the best interest of the corporation. Uh, principally for the benefit of the owners of the company, but they they got to protect the corporation itself so that you're not uh, looking at just protecting the majority members or the minority members of the company. And in North Carolina, the North Carolina Business Corporation Act governs the actions of directors uh, in North Carolina uh, for corporations, and that sets forth the duties of a director. And under that act, uh, the directors must follow uh, certain um, requirements or, or criteria. Uh, in general, that act requires a director to act in the good faith, uh, with due care, and with loyal loyalty to the corporation. So again, thinking in good faith, with due care, and loyalty. And just to look at those three factors just a little bit. So what what does the duty of acting in good faith mean, right? It's obviously being honest, being conscientious, and fair. And again, that's looking you're not looking at, at your own interest if you are a shareholder. You're looking at the interest of the corporation um, and duty of good faith and to be honest, to be conscientious, and to be fair. And in the, it's in the best interest of the corporation shareholders uh, and not for an advantage of particularly one group or the other. But again, you can't make a decision on behalf of the corporation that would 
that you're trying to benefit either yourself directly or the corporation. Now, there may be a benefit that comes out of decisions or, or you know, um, debates within the board directors, but by itself, you got to act in good faith on behalf of what's what's best interest for the corporation. And Ian and I've seen this a lot, um, where you have a group of shareholders that are also board members, um, and sometimes you have personality conflicts. Sometimes there's a um, an issue with people that are leading the corporation that are actually managing the company as officers, maybe, um, and how they operate. And then that creates some issues because the directors think it should be run in a different direction. And they try to step in and handle the day-to-day affairs of the, of the company. And really that's not what a board of directors members is responsible to do. They are separate responsibilities. Uh, So sometimes personality conflicts get in the way. Um, Ian, I know he, he and I've seen this several times. Greed steps in a lot, right? Especially if you're an officer. Ian, would you agree? Greed, money, it's the yeah. root of all evils. It followed, you know, it's like the old ad, it's follow the money. Um, it, it, that's generally in, involved. Sometimes it's ego, right? Uh, I don't want to be told what I'm doing or what to do or, you know, how to do it. Uh, that happens sometimes. So a director is... Um, They've got to act on the behalf of the, what's best for the interest of the corporation. So you also have a duty of due care. Like, what in the world does that mean? Um, there's an, an affirmative duty to direct and supervise the affairs of the corporation with diligence and with care. Right. Directors are not uh, allowed to passively sort of ignore what they see is going on or stick their heads in the sand and go, I'm not going to I'm not going to ask the question. I'm not going to look. I'm not going to ask. Just going to, you know, turn turn my head and pretend like I'm not knowing what's going on. You can't do that either. Um, you can't refrain from uh, misconduct in order to fulfill your duty of due care to say, "Well, I didn't know that, right?" Or I didn't ask those questions. Um, so the act defines a duty of a due care as having the obligation of a director to act with the care of an ordinary, prudent person in a like position that would exercise that they would under, exercise under similar circumstances. So again, it's not a Monday morning quarterback kind of issue, but it's um, you're looking at right then what, what did they know? What should they have known? What should they have asked for? Um, it, did they act in an ordinary prudent type situation that a prudent person would be, would be carrying out using similar circumstances? Um, and it also requires the directors to make a responsible inquiry um, as to what's going on. So, you, again, you can't just act like you didn't know or stick your head in the sand. Um, and one other duty is the duty of loyalty, uh, that which requires the director to uh, act in a manner uh, that the director reasonably believes to be in the best interest of the corporation. So the director must act on behalf of the corporation um, and the director's actions are really guided for the best interest of the corporation. Um, and the duty also prohibits a director from using their position, right, as, um, for example, for their personal gain or um, to somehow harm the company. So in this case, with general manager or the or general motors, this guy evidently leaked information um, that, again, I'm not sure. It, I think he actually got a bribe and he had um, there's some other allegations going on. Some Actually, he pled to a criminal action uh, having to do with a bribe. So part of it was he leaked this information for dollars um, had to do with an offshore bank account. Imagine that. 
Um, hopefully that, that doesn't happen to our clients, but certainly the duty of a, of a board directors member as a fiduciary, right, as, as having a responsibility to act on behalf of the company applies, right? And it's one of those things where we, we see it with small business owners. Um, and if you own your company, right, and, you, and, you, and it's starting to grow, you think, okay, I'm going to broaden this board directors out. And you have multiple shareholders and generally it's shareholders that want to be on the board. Or sometimes if you're big enough now, you might get outsiders to be on the board. Um, you really got to be thinking about how you do that. Hopefully you're running your business um, on the up and up and there's no question about this. But um, there was a client or case we had a number a while back, a couple of years ago, where a person started the company, um, lived it, breathed it birthed it, you know, created all, all the products and the, the design and the ideas, but could not let go, right? And as the company started to grow, they brought in more investors, more board members, and then the fight began. Uh, and it came down to ego and pride and also dollars. Um, and it blew up. Um, and generally speaking, that's not a good thing for the company when you're fighting internally. Uh, so anyway, hope that helps. Ian, you got any ideas you're going to throw in? Yeah, the only thing that I would really throw in is it seems like in the litigation context, these breach of fiduciary duty claims come up often anytime a business uh, is maybe not doing well. So there's a big difference between somebody misappropriating confidential information for their own personal benefit. That is pretty clearly a breach of fiduciary duty versus well, things didn't work out the way we wanted to, so now I'm going to sue you claiming you breached your fiduciary duty. Um, we could have a whole other podcast about the business, judge, business judgment rule and things like that, um, but uh, we don't want to dissuade anybody from serving on a board because uh, as long as you're honest and uh, do the best that you can, uh, it's unlikely that you're going to run afoul of your fiduciary duties, but uh, it doesn't mean you're not going to get accused of it if things uh, go poorly. <laughs> And Ian, to that effect, it is not a guarantee of success of the business. That is, if you accept the obligation to serve on a board, right, you're not guaranteeing that, it's all, that everything's going to be honky-dory and it's going to be profitable. Um, things may may not turn out that way, right? But that's not a guarantee. So, yeah, anyway, exactly. hope that helps. Um, Ian, I think you're going to lead us off today. We're going to be talking about filing a lawsuit on behalf of your business. So, Yeah, um, so if you'll remember, we've talked a lot about uh, the process uh, of doing business, really from contracting with a customer uh, to a customer defaulting on what they said they were going to do, uh, you gently and then maybe more forcefully encouraging them to do what they're obligated to do. Um, so what today is about is after you have taken every step you're going to take to try and get your customer to do whatever they said they were going to do, uh, and you unfortunately have to result to court because there's no other way to do it. Um, so the first question you really have to uh, make sure you know the answer to is who is it that you want to sue and who do you need to sue? Can, um, that, can that be everybody? No, it would huh. be everybody. Sorry. Well, yeah, there are some people that feel that way. <laughs> um, so uh, if we're talking about a situation where you've done work for someone, maybe you're a general contractor and uh, have filed a lien or contemplating filing a lien, um, then you need to know well, who all needs to be included on that paperwork, uh, who doesn't need to be included. Um, the same is true if uh, you sell goods on an open account, 
um, you need to look at the paperwork uh, related to the account and figure out, all right, well, you've probably got a business that you're dealing with, um, but you also hopefully have some guarantors on that account. And uh, whenever you're talking to your lawyer about filing a lawsuit to recover your money, you need to make sure that all of those people are properly communicated to your lawyers. And the easiest way is to have it all on a nice contract that you can send over to uh, your representative that will look at it, understand what all that stuff means, and uh, then they get to help you figure out whose name shows up at the top of the lawsuit. Um, speaking of names, um, we really need to know people's correct names. Uh, every now and again, we'll have clients who, uh, you know, they, they just know somebody is junior, but uh, it, every now and again, you see somebody whose actual name is junior, but usually um, that is not their name. So we need to know what their, their legal name is um, so that we can properly include that on the paperwork. Um, another thing we need to know is to what extent is each person that you're contemplating filing a lawsuit liable? Um, I know in a lot of uh, commercial lease contexts, um, folks will sometimes negotiate down their personal liability on a guarantee. Um, so the business might be on the hook for the full amount, but a personal guarantor may uh, be able to limit their liability. I wouldn't encourage you to do that if you're a landlord, um, but it, it certainly does happen. Um, so we need to make sure that we're alleging the correct liability as to each person that uh, we're going to file a lawsuit against. Uh, the other thing that we need to make sure of when deciding who we file a lawsuit against is, uh, is that person still alive? Um, their death may not cut off your liability, particularly if there's an open estate. Um, are they still in business if we're talking about the corporation? Again, that may not uh, impair your ability to proceed, but it's just something we need to know so that we can uh, make sure that we properly analyze that issue. Um, one thing that is super important is we need to make sure that the people that we are including on a lawsuit are not in bankruptcy. Um, and what we'll usually try to do is do some searches on that before we uh, file suit. Um, it's not that big of an issue if you had no idea that someone had filed bankruptcy and then you accidentally sue them. But if you know somebody is in bankruptcy, uh, we need to know that so that we're not uh, running afoul of the automatic stay in bankruptcy. Hey, um, and also, if you also if they have been in bankruptcy, but now may be out, right? And it has to do with all so some of that. Uh, so the contract business happened before that, and then they file bankruptcy, but now they're out. We need to know that as well. Exactly, that is another important issue. Um, so. That's really the process of determining who it is that you're going to sue. Um, the next thing that we need to figure out is where are we going to file this lawsuit? And the first thing that we tend to look at is uh, the contract between you and your customer. Uh, sometimes the contract will have a venue clause in it. And if it's a contract that we've put together for you, we'll probably put uh, a Wake County venue clause because that's where we operate and uh, saves you a lot of money in the long run if we don't have to run all over the state to try and uh, collect money for you. Um, 
oftentimes though uh we'll get calls from people and uh they will have been sued in a place that they've never been before and it's because the contract that's at issue will have a venue clause in it uh, the most recent one i saw was in indianapolis indiana and mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure my client had never been to indianapolis <laughs> but uh, she had agreed that that was where the litigation was going to take place um so that certainly complicates things so uh Obviously, you don't want to put an inconvenient venue for you in any of your contracts. Um, but if you're getting sued, uh, you need to make sure that uh, they actually have sued you in a place that is a proper venue. Um, so Rule 12B3 of the North Carolina Rules of Civil Procedure is a motion to dismiss for improper venue or improper division. So if you're bringing a lawsuit, uh, in a venue that is just not proper. We can spend a lot of time talking about what makes it proper or not proper. Um, your claim is actually subject to dismissal. I'll tell you that that is pretty rare that it actually happens, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to have to spend money fighting about uh, the venue issue. So the easiest way if you uh, are dealing with goods that you're selling uh, on a contract, for instance, or work that you're doing pursuant to a contract is just clear that up on the front end, put a venue clause, and then you can rely on that. Um, another thing to think about uh, if you don't have a, a clear answer on venue is where you're going to file your lawsuit depends on uh, the facts of the case and the type of case. Sometimes you're going to have options. Sometimes you don't have options. Uh, for instance, generally a lawsuit about a piece of real estate uh, is going to need to proceed wherever that real estate is located. Uh, I'd say that's true for lien claims. Um, Other times, though, you're going to have an option. And there, um, you really want to consider the type of case, the type of judges that might be in that particular uh, venue, the jurors you might deal with in a particular venue. I used to do a lot of plaintiff's personal injury work, and uh, North Carolina, Robinson County is where you want to be if you're on the plaintiff's side. Um, so that's just something that lawyers can do some research on to figure out favorable verdicts uh, in particular types of cases. And favorable can mean a lot of different things. So uh, in the personal injury world, uh, defense lawyers are going to be trying to figure out how to get a case out of Robinson County. Um, then once you've determined what a proper venue is, it's important to keep in mind that uh, that doesn't mean that you're absolutely going to get to stay there. Just because a venue is technically proper under the rules and you're not going to get dismissed uh, on a motion to dismiss, uh, it's still possible that you might see a motion to move the case out of whatever venue you filed it in And the most common reason for that is convenience of witnesses. So if it's technically proper to file a case in Wake County, um, but every other witness in the case is in Durham County, um, it's possible that uh, the court is going to just move the matter over to Durham. So the one thing that I would really consider uh, or encourage clients to consider as we're deciding where we're going to uh, file a lawsuit is attorney travel time. Uh, I think whichever lawyer you hire to uh, pursue a claim on your behalf, uh, if they don't have to spend a lot of time driving to and from whichever county the action is pending in, 
that's going to save you a good amount of money, particularly if it's a case that is going to require a lot of trips to the courthouse. Um, so James, and other than just uh, who and where you're going to sue, I think it's important to uh, figure out what exactly it is that you're going to sue the other party or parties for. So talk to us a little bit about yeah. that. If I can just add one more thing in what you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, as far as the travel time for attorneys, we actually thankfully have figured out how to handle cases pretty much all over North Carolina. I, I will tell you, it's, I remember one time before I took a case that was, uh, I think in Alexander County, which is far, far West. And I realized that we, I couldn't be effective. Right. I mean, it just, it takes forever to get to Alexander County from, from Wake County. Uh, but you know, Mecklenburg, Guilford, um, any, any, any of those kinds of counties, um, I, I don't, we don't take as many up around the Asheville area as we used to, even though we have a few, but thankfully now because North Carolina is at least in 2021 supposed to be going to online filing, you got fewer trips to the courthouse. Um, it really depends on the case, but it's, it's a conversation you ought to have either with us or with your attorney because um, we take cases all over the state. But again, it depends. There could be jurisdiction or venue proper in Wake County that you could utilize that, or it may be in another county that you have a reason that you have to be there. Like um, we do stuff in Wilmington or those areas. And thankfully, because of where we're located in the road work um, and how we're, we're set up, we actually can do it pretty efficiently. But uh, it is worthy of a conversation. But you're exactly right. So that's awesome. Good advice. Um, things you want to consider. So, uh, what are you going to do as far as what, what, what are you going to be suing the, <clears throat> excuse me, suing the other party for, right? What's the, what are the, what we say is the causes of action or what can you, uh, uh, what are you going to allege that the other party did or, or didn't do? Uh, it really depends on the facts of your case. Um, so think about this. We would encourage you at least with, with, if you hire us or somebody else, share all of the information that you have, share all of your documents, Right share all the facts uh, with your attorney because it's amazing that we, you know, we, we think we get hundred percent of it. All of a sudden we realize that we got like 75 or 80% and go, Oh, by the way, let me just tell you this, right. You've already either drafted the contract or excuse me, drafted the lawsuit or you're just about to, or sometimes you've already drafted and filed and they go, but let me tell you this, does this matter? And all of a sudden you go, Oh yeah, that matters. So I would, we would encourage you to share everything, you know, right. Uh, even if you think it may not be pertinent or if one side did or said something that's pertinent or you think it might be pertinent, just share it, right? Just because if we don't know it, we can't include it in it. And sometimes it might not be, doesn't matter, right? It may not be pertinent, but share all of the facts, all the documents, conversations, that kind of thing with your attorney because uh, the facts really do matter. It could be obviously a breach of contract or uh, the terms unjust enrichment means the other side got something they didn't deserve, or uh, there, there could be a claim uh, to enforce maybe with a lien claim or something of that nature. Could be a personal guarantee. Could be they took money from the company, um, you know, or they took the assets of the company and started another company, right? Um, think about a lawsuit we have going on right now. So could be all kinds of things, whatever those um, causes of action could be. And that is the, the reasons you want to sue. Um, so then it brings us to the conversation. Do you have, do you verify the pleading or not? And 
verification is basically a sworn statement of saying everything in here is true, right? It's more of a legal thing. It's not really a doesn't help your case from a standpoint of the facts, um, but it does make a difference to the court system based off of the rules. So basically, you're saying, I swear, I promise this information is accurate. It's like doing an affidavit. Um, a verified complaint is a good idea, obviously, if you're suing for some certain. A lot of our clients are uh, suing for a breach of contract where they know the dollar amount that's due and owing, right? They 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 know that this amount of money is owed on the account or on the contract or whatever the case may be. And in that case, doing a verified or verifying the complaint, which is a paragraph that says, I've read it, this is accurate, it's true, and it's notarized. It raises the the um, significance of that complaint in the eyes of the court. They say, "Wow, that's that's verified. That's that's true. That's sworn." It's like having, it's like going in court, putting your hand on the Bible, and raising your right and saying, "Yes, I promise the information I'm telling is true." And the reason that makes a difference is when the court looks at it later, it could be that you don't even have to have a hearing if to get a judgment. Right? You could do a default judgment. You don't have to worry about it at that point. Or if you're going to go for a summary judgment, if the other side did answer, or for some reason you need to get a summary judgment uh, anyway, and the other side does not have a verified answer, then that raises the level to, of your your complaint to, to a higher standard in the court. And they look at it, I, I think, with, um, with a, a more uh, positive eye or positive look to it. Um, Sometimes you may have a case that's really complex or the facts are really um, difficult to, to understand or it's just a really complex case, right? And you may not want to verify it. You don't have to have a verified complaint. But if you're so suing for a sum certain that like a prom note, right, or some promise to pay or if there's a breach of contract and you know exactly how much is owed, maybe you want to do that. But there may be cases that you don't. So have that conversation with your lawyer. Hopefully they're, they're having that with you as well. So again, that's just one of the elements that we think about when we're preparing a complaint um, and what we need to do. So Ian, talk to us a little bit about what kind of, when you, we talk about the pleadings and the facts and the details of the documents, talk to us a little bit about what do you attach to a complaint? Sure. Um, so I think it, again, is going to depend on the type of case. Um, but if we're suing on a promissory note, for instance, there's no reason not to attach a copy of that promissory note to the complaint. Uh, the same is true uh, if that promissory note was personally guaranteed, we would attach that to the complaint. And the idea there is we want to present everything to the court in a way that they can look at it and say, okay, this promissory note was made, this uh, guarantee was made, there's a verified complaint saying that X amount of dollars is owed, um, that makes it really simple for the court to do their analysis whenever we're trying to get a judgment against somebody. Um, other things that you might want to think about attaching, uh, any other kind of contract that exists. Um, so, uh, you know, whatever that looks like in your particular case is important. Uh, then any emails or other important documents. I mean, I've seen complaints before that have, thankfully they didn't, uh, print out all this paper, but have uh, 2,100 pages of exhibits attached to them. Um, that is, uh, that's a little much, but sometimes it's important depending on what kind of case it is. Um, so really, it just depends on what it is that you are trying to show the court to make the court understand why you're entitled to some kind of relief. Uh, another thing to keep in mind, though, is 
that if we mention a document in the pleading, then under the rules and under the case law, the other side can rely on that. Um, so if we say that we had a contract with you and for whatever reason we didn't attach it, if that contract has something in it that uh, is harmful to our side of the case, we need to know that because um, the other side can hand it up to the court and try to get the lawsuit dismissed based on that. Um, so we have to be a little bit careful about what we attach because it becomes uh, part of the record that the court's going to look at. Yeah. So when you're getting ready to file that, right, so we send our stuff to our, our, our documents to our client to review before we file it, right, before it goes into the court system. And especially if we're going to ask them to verify it, we want them to review it. So what does that really mean, right? So always review what your lawyer sends to you that they plan on filing. Uh, it's that trust, trust your attorney, but review it, right? Look, look over it and make sure that it's right. Read it from, we say, top left to the bottom right to make sure that it's right. Uh, don't be afraid to ask those questions, right? You're not, you're not throwing your lawyer under the bus and saying, hey, look, this is what this says, but I'm not sure what that means if you don't understand it. Because it, it could be that it, we get it wrong or your attorney gets it wrong. They heard what you said, but they interpreted it differently. So just think through that a little bit and make sure you ask those questions. Uh, we rely on what our clients tell us, right? And most lawyers do, right? We might go back and look at some information and try to make sure that it makes sense. Um, in fact, we do. Most lawyers do. But you also want to make, make real careful attention to, or pay uh, careful attention to what is prepared and what's going to be written to file to be filed right because later on somebody's gonna probably ask you well what did you mean by this right why why was that there um make sure that nothing has been lost in that translation between what you shared with your attorney and what they heard and then wrote um because you and, you know we all can write hear a story write it down and misinterpret it unintentionally but so make sure you read through that and just carefully review it you're it's a team atmosphere team effort team team work uh, in getting that accomplished and uh, at least for us we don't ever get offended by a client saying hey look that i want to make sure this is what, saying what that says right um so anyway hopefully that helps ian yeah absolutely um so that's really the process in terms of getting a lawsuit filed we're going to talk more uh in the next podcast about the next steps beyond that um, but hopefully that makes it clear about uh, just what goes into putting a lawsuit together. Uh, our question of the week this week uh, is one that I've gotten uh, quite a bit here recently from a lot of different folks is what can I do if somebody has a judgment against me? So at this point, we are past uh, the lawsuit being filed. Uh, the other side has uh, gone through whatever process they've gone through to secure a judgment. So the first question that I always ask is, when was the judgment obtained? Um, because depending on when the other side got the judgment, there may be some things we can do under the rules of civil procedure to try to get it undone. Uh, and that's a really fact-specific inquiry. inquiry. Uh, we're going to have to show that you have a meritorious defense. Uh, so that's not really an analysis we're going to do if uh, it's a really clear situation where you owed the money, you just didn't have it to pay, and they've got a judgment. Well, there's not much we can do in terms of getting that set aside. That doesn't mean that you don't have any options, though. Um, so the next question that I always ask folks is, what is your financial condition? So uh, 
are you judgment proof? Uh, what I mean by that is, uh, if somebody has a judgment against you, um, are they, is anybody going to be able to collect on them? Is there money sitting in an account somewhere? Do you have a bunch of vehicles you own free and clear or real estate you own free and clear? Um, or are you in a situation where you just don't have a lot of free uh, income or assets to utilize for dealing with the judgment? Um, so your financial condition matters. And then also the size of the judgment matters. If somebody calls me and they say that somebody has a, four or $5,000 judgment against them. Uh, there's not much I can do with that because we're going to spend that much or more trying to deal with it. Um, I'll usually try to talk people through how they might go about talking to the person that has the judgment so that they can minimize the damage. But a lot of times in those situations, my advice is going to be to just pay it or pay part of it and see if that will get it resolved. If uh, we're talking about a massive judgment that someone has gotten against you, maybe you were a personal guarantor on a business debt and the business has uh, gone out of business, uh, it's likely that we're going to suggest that you consider hiring bankruptcy counsel in that situation, particularly if you have some personal assets that you'd like to try and see about protecting. If bankruptcy isn't a good option for you and you have the ability to pay something, uh, then what I usually tell people is that either the person that I'm talking to or uh, a lawyer reaches out to the other side to see if they can negotiate some kind of a lower payoff of the judgment. Um, and you know, that really just depends on the size of the judgment, the ability to pay, and the situation surrounding the judgment. Uh, what I would say about that, though, particularly if you decide that you want to try and handle the negotiation yourself is make sure you have something in writing outlining exactly what uh, everybody's agreeing to before you send any money to the person that has a judgment against you. Because if you don't have it in writing and you send them 50% of the judgment, what they're probably going to do is, especially if they're not honest, is they're going to mark half the judgment satisfied and then still proceed for the rest. Um, so just make sure you get everything in writing that protects you and it's an important thing to do. Hopefully that helps. Hopefully you don't find yourself in a situation where you owe a judgment, but uh, it happens. So uh, if that's something that uh, has happened to you, uh, you have options. You just have to kind of look at the facts and circumstances of your situation and your financial condition. James, do you have anything to add to No, to that? no that's great. Advice no. Perfect advice, I think. Um, yeah, that's good. All right. Well, we hope that uh, you have found this week's podcast to be helpful, and we look forward to talking with you in the next one.